The Bible says, God says, that today is the day of salvation. I didn't say that. I didn't make that up. God said that. God said it. And if you will look to Him through Christ, you can be saved today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to read verses 26 through 31, although we won't, we won't get very far. Beginning in verse 26, the apostle says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written... Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the Word of God. Let's pray and ask Him to, to help us. Father, we, we do thank You again for Your Word. We thank You for your, your mighty power. We thank You for Your sovereign choice. Lord, would You please help us to understand Your Word and would You, even this hour, just draw near to us and remind us of Your marvelous grace. You have been so good to us. Would you please extend that grace, even saving grace, this hour, Lord. Lord, you said it was the day of salvation. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Everyone in this room has sinned against the God who made us and takes care of us. Every one of our needs, every breath, every heartbeat, everything. We've sinned against Him. And though we deserve punishment, God's plan has actually been from eternity to save sinners. To save all of those who would turn to Him in repentance and faith. And one of the means that He uses to, to carry out this plan is preaching. This is how God has determined that it would be, that a preacher would go and He would tell people, this is God's plan and this is what God requires of you and this is what God has done to save sinners and, and this is what God expects of you in return and that if you will do what God expects, that God will do what He has promised to do. That's the means that God has used, has determined to use to save sinners, preaching. But preaching is a two-edged sword, like all of the Word of God. Preaching is a two-edged sword. It is a, a judgment upon the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of men because the message that we preach, a crucified Messiah, well, that just sounds foolish. And then this method of preaching... Or I would, or any preacher would stand before you and authoritatively say, this is how it is, and I'm not asking for opinions or, or, or discussion. It just is what it is. That's foolish to the world. It cuts that way. It, it, it judges and it condemns the wisdom of men. But at the same time, it is the chosen means of salvation. We see this theme throughout Scripture, and we've talked about this. Salvation through an act of judgment. Think about the history of Scripture. God brings this awful act of judgment, but right in the midst of it, He's saving His people. Or, or a judgment which also brings along with it salvation. That's a, a way that God has worked. Now, we're studying 1 Corinthians. The Corinthians, that is the saints in the church in the city of Corinth, they had begun to distort preaching. They were using it the wrong way. 
So rather than either a means of, of judgment upon the wisdom of men and a means and or a means of salvation, they were taking it and using it as a way to exalt and elevate their wisdom. I like this preacher. I like this preacher. Well, this guy's smarter than this guy. Well, this guy does it this way. Well, this guy does it this way. Well, you just don't like so-and-so because you can't understand his arguments. Well, you just don't like so-and-so because he's so plain and simple. They would... They had divided into factions. They were using preaching the wrong way. It's meant to either, and at, at the same time, both and, condemn the wisdom of men and save sinners, but never meant to exalt the wisdom of men. Never that. And so Paul has been laboring from about verse 18 of this chapter to prove that human wisdom is not what God has chosen to use. God has determined to save sinners through the foolishness of preaching Christ crucified. Now most recently as we've been working through this section, he addressed sort of the broader culture, Jews and Greeks. Jews seek after signs, Greeks seek wisdom. The, 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 the culture of, of the human race and especially those in Corinth, they, they were seeking certain things. Paul says, we, we, don't, um, we don't give them what they're seeking. We preach Christ crucified. The Jews have their desires. The Greeks have their desires. We continue to do the same thing. They ask for wisdom, the wisdom of man. We preach God's wisdom found in the crucified Christ. And in that, again, God judges human wisdom and He saves sinners through the means of preaching. That's sort of the all-encompassing theme. Now we're going to move to verse 26. Paul is still defending and proving the same thing. He's not changing his argument or his, his, uh, his theme, his method. He's just going to go and be more specific. At this point, it's like Paul walked in the door of the meeting of the saints in Corinth and he's pointing at them, individuals. Now, he's, it's not, not the culture. They understood their culture. They, they came from their culture. But now he's going to appeal to their own experience to prove to them, you know this is not the case. Or, or you know this is the case, depending on how you think of it. In verses 26 through 29, he had, he's going to address their own experience of salvation. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he's going to address their experience of his preaching. In other words, he's going to say, now think about yourself when you were saved. And then and, and think about how it was when I came to you preaching. You know from your experience that all of this worldly wisdom, that is not the way you were brought into the kingdom. That's, that's what he's doing. Same theme, and yet he's just moving closer. He's inching closer and closer and closer, being more and more personal with them. So he's going to use the Corinthians' own experience as evidence to prove what he's saying, which is a very useful tactic. Anytime you can look, point to somebody and say, in your own life, you know this, you've done this, you've seen this, you've said this, case closed. There, there's no, no, no longer any argument. That's what he's doing. In order to do this, in verses 26 through 31, Paul exhorts them to first evaluate their history, secondly to appreciate God's sovereignty, and then thirdly to assimilate God's strategy. Now, we're just going to deal with the first one today. He is going to exhort them to evaluate their history. So look at verse 26. He says, for, letting us know he's still in part of the same argument, the word for. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. What's he saying? He's saying... Think about it. Think about yourself. He's saying, go back to the beginning of your walk with the Lord. Just think about the state of affairs. Think about what was happening back then. Think about who you were. And then he's saying, can each one of you not verify that what I'm saying is true? That it was not any of these worldly criteria that brought you to Christ? That's what he's saying. So what are these, the, the words and phrases? He says, consider your calling, brothers. The word consider means literally look at it. But, but it means figuratively to take it into consideration or to think about the situation. 
to, to observe. And then that phrase, your calling, I'm not going to go into a, an explanation of effectual calling, but basically what he's saying is, consider the state that you were in when you were effectually called into salvation by God. It's this, this idea of calling is the same that he used in verse 2 of this chapter. There's, uh, they are called the saints called to be saints, effectually called into a relationship with God. In verse 9, he says they were called into the fellowship of His Son. It's the effectual call. He uses this same type of reasoning or, or language later on in chapter 7 when he says things like this. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? He who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. In other words, whatever state you were in when you were saved, when God came to you and called you to life and salvation, that's, that's what he's talking about. Your entrance into the life of grace and salvation in Christ. The effectual call. Now, there, there's, there was this tendency to misunderstand the application of this amongst the Corinthians in, in chapter 7. Why, why does he have to address certain things? Because they, they were thinking this way. Well, we've been called into a, a, a relationship with Christ. We've been called into a new, new religion. So we should probably divorce all of our unbelieving spouses, right? No, 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 no. Well, I, well I, I, I'm, I'm a Christian now. I've been called into a relationship with Christ. I sh I'm, I'm probably set free from my master, right? No. If you can, avail yourself of that. In other words, they, they were misunderstanding. What does it look like in this new life in Christ? At some points, they had assumed the change meant too much. At other points, that they didn't change enough. At, other, at some points, they had been called and they had changed, but then they had begun to regress and to live inconsistently with what they had experienced. So that's what he's saying. Consider your calling. Go back in your mind to the state or condition that you were in when God brought you to Himself. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards or literally according to the flesh. Now, that concept of the flesh is, is used variously throughout the New Testament. If we take this merely as what we typically think of as the, the human nature as it is still um, retaining the effects of the fall in Adam, the flesh, well, in that sense... Everybody has the wisdom of the, of the, the flesh. That, that is our natural condition. What does he mean by the, the, the wisdom of the flesh or according to worldly standards as it's translated here? Well, the, the parallel is seen in verse 27 when he says, God chose what is foolish in the world or according to the way the world values things. So when he says, not many of you are wise according to the flesh, he means just that. You're, you're not, you are not wise according to these external criteria that the world calls wise according to worldly standards. So when it came to that chief prize among the Greeks, wisdom, he's saying, not many of you had anything resembling that. Think back to it. You didn't have that. What they were all seeking, you were seeking too. And you didn't have it. Not many of you were wise. He says, not many of you were powerful. That's a reference to authority and influence that usually would come with having uh, lots of money, lots of income, owning a business, something to that effect, maybe a position of, of uh, political power. Not many of you had that. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth or literally well-born. Meaning, they had not come from these high-ranking pedigrees of society. You know, people who were, they, they come out of the womb and everybody celebrates them as a... a a figure to be honored because of their lineage, their birth. You think of a prince or a princess or some sort of figure like that. A nobility, highly revered families. Now all of these, power, wisdom, nobility, we can recognize these are all carnal attainments. 
These are things that can be achieved by either some human effort or merely the product of biology. You just came out of the womb well-born, noble birth. But it's all human. It's all carnal, all fleshly. They're all things that if we trace them back to their root, we could give the glory to man. Society praises these things. Their society praises these things. Are you wise? Are you powerful? Are you, are you of the noble class? Paul says, not many of you are wise. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. Now, notice he does not say, none of you. He says, not many. None of you. He doesn't say none of you. He says, not many. Now, that implies, and we might look at this in the future, but th that implies that there were probably some in their number who actually did... Uh, get to some attainment of wisdom. There were probably some who actually were sort of powerful, had some influence in their society. There probably were some who were of noble birth. But here's, here's the, the thing. There they all sat together. The point being, if you had that or you didn't have that, now you're all together. All of that was irrelevant. Those who were of noble birth, who were powerful, who were wise, well, now they've been gathered in amongst the, the majority who are not wise, not powerful, not of noble birth. If anything, what it's saying is those things ultimately had nothing to do with your salvation. Now, why does he say this? Again, he's, he's exhorting them to evaluate their own history. Go back in your mind... To your former state. Think about it. And then compare that state where you were and this, with this great change that God has made. And then take that reality and see if you can hold that consistently with your current habits of self-exaltation and the pursuit of wisdom and the dividing into factions and all of those things. You, you just go ahead and do it. You, you didn't have it. Most of you, many of you, didn't have it, and now, now you're here. God has saved you. But now you're trying to go back and elevate those things. Does that make any sense? That's what he's saying. Evaluate it. Go back. Doing this, they would see that it was not by worldly wisdom. It was not by any of these carnal attainments that they had come to know God. They would have to confess. You're right, I wasn't wise, so it couldn't have been wisdom. You're right, I wasn't powerful, so it couldn't have been power. You're right, I, I wasn't born of the nobility, so it couldn't have been that. And all those who did have that, well, they would look across the aisle at their brothers and sisters and then say, they would say, well, I did have those things, but, well, my goodness, I'm right here with them, so clearly that didn't mean anything. These factors played no role in their salvation. So then, why would they resort back to that way of thinking now? In other words, it doesn't comport with Christianity in their own experience. Paul's using their own experience to prove that these things that men use to elevate themselves, these status symbols amongst men, God thwarts them. God mocks them. God scoffs at them. It's nothing to Him. It's these things that the world considers important or, or worthy of your pursuits. God, God does one of these matters. It's nothing. To him. He's trying to get them to see what we read in Luke 16, 15, that what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, a lot of people will use Christianity as an avenue to exalt really the same things that evil men exalt, wisdom, power, nobility. They just use Christianity as the way to do it. They, they slide it in and they just sort of Christianize it in a sense. There are many who come from a, a, a low estate, not wise, not powerful, not well-born, but they've always craved after it, they've always longed for it, and so they would, they would see Christianity as a way to finally satisfy that desire that they've always had to have a leg up on other people. So they, they gain a little bit of new knowledge, and they can glory in it. Nobody that I hang out with knows what I know. I, I've got a new system, a new way. And they can begin to peddle it. Having a, gotten a grasp of a certain theological system, they begin to boast over others of, that have lesser attainments or lesser 
gifts or having subscribed to a certain group of preachers, well, then they gloat over people who haven't found those preachers yet. Right? Who do you listen to? <laughs> you mean to tell me you haven't heard of so-and-so? They'll, they'll actually use Christianity as the, the outlet to do what they wanted to do when they were lost. This is bringing the way of the world into the church. Many people will find that theological studies, getting to a point, oh, I got it, I see it, it's clear. Well, that helps them feel accomplished. They, they searched it out and they got to a conclusion. I feel like I've done it, I've attained i got a new level of knowledge. A lot of people will pursue theological studies so that they can finally exercise a little bit of authority over other people. You don't know, I know, let me tell you. That sort of thinking. Because again, they've always wanted a little bit of influence. and That's bringing the ways of the world into the church. Paul says, go back to the beginning. Don't think about where you are right now. That's, that's, this is what gets us prideful is when we, we forget the beginning and we always stay right where we are. We don't think about the past or the future. He says, go back to the beginning. If you've truly come under the cleansing and saving power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you are a new creature in Christ, if you'll go back to the beginning, you'll recognize that's not how you came to Christ. The way you're thinking now that's not what got you in. That's not what got you in the door. As he would say in Ephesians, that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have learned. So if they were honest, they would see, by evaluating their own salvation history, that this way of so-called wisdom, this way of glorying and gloating over others, of having something to hold over the heads of their brothers and sisters, that was not what brought them to the Lord. And those few who may have been wise and powerful and well-born, they would have said, I had those things, but I really had to renounce all of them when I came to Christ. And here I sat with my brothers and sisters and I recognized none of that meant squat. And this would prove the apostle's point. God's ways and man's ways are opposed. You know it. You can recognize it. Now, what can we learn from this? Six things. Number one, it is good and helpful to consider your former days. It is good and helpful to consider your former days. He doesn't just do this here. This is the same thing that he said to the Galatians, although they were in much more danger. But in Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he does the same thing. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, they would have had to give a rhetorical answer. Hearing with faith. So then he responds to what he knows will be their answer. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Same idea. Go back to where you started. How did all of this begin? Are you, do you think that it's changed now? Or are, we, are we moving to different tracks now that you've gotten on the pathway? Uh, is the, 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 the gate was, was very narrow, has the way now widened? No. He'd done that with the Galatians. So it lets us know this was a, a good thing. He points Christians in both scenarios to this. Now the point here is not that we constantly live in the past, but regularly recount the manner of God's salvation. It is good and helpful to consider your former days. So think back to the days prior to your salvation. So enough up until this point you've been watching a sermon. I don't want you to do that. I want you to think. Think back to the days prior to your salvation. Now some of you can remember those days. Think about it. Consider with what ignorance and blindness and arrogance you lived. See, back then you didn't think about it. The only way we can properly evaluate it and think about it is now. Consider, think about your foolish decisions and, and just your general way of life. 
You look back on it now, having learned a little, you look back and you say, mercy. What was I doing? What was I thinking? In that moment, you couldn't, you couldn't evaluate it properly. Think back about your foolish decisions, your way of life. Think about how swiftly you ran with the current of the world. It didn't even have to be a swift current. If it just moved past you, you hopped in and were gone. Every way that people are going, you are hopping in. You may not have known it then, but you lived under constant, moment-by-moment condemnation. Back in those days. You were tottering on the brink of hell every second. And you didn't know it. You weren't thinking of that. You were not seeking after God. You were not searching for Christ. Now some of you would have to think all the way back to your childhood. And maybe the depth of your sin had not really been manifested in some external way that you or others would have seen. But what does the Scripture say? Even then, as ignorant with, with, with childish ignorance as you were, the Bible says you were in Adam. You were under the wrath of God before you came out of the womb. Under God's wrath. Deserving death. Some of you here spent years living under a false profession of faith. Comforted by a false conversion. And you had no clue you were lost. You thought you were a Christian. Tottering on the brink of hell. If there would have been some unexpected tragedy, some, some slip of the steering wheel, some, some glancing over when the light turned red, you would have entered into hell. You would have... You would have lifted up your eyes in hell in utter astonishment because you thought you were on the right path and you would have remained there even to this very day. Some of you spent years living pretty much the most profligate and openly rebellious life you could. You, you, were, you knew you were lost. You were heading for it. You were grabbing at everything you could. Anything that you could conjure up. Some of you were very wholesome, moral people. No, nobody would have ever thought that there was anything morally um, wrong with you. Others of you, you'd say, hey, everybody knew me. I was, I was the sinner. Um, in town, I was that guy. You would say that. But others of you would say, no, I, 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 was, I was clean cut. I was calm. Nobody ever would have expected anything other than, uh, from me other than, than I was an upstanding moral person. Some of you were not raised anywhere near Christianity. You had no idea what a Christian was. You didn't know what it meant to be a Christian. You didn't have a Bible in the house. You might hear people talking about church, or, but that was nowhere in your experience. And what does the Bible say? None is righteous. No, not one. In any of those scenarios, is anybody more righteous than anyone else? Not one. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's resting over his head. Considering that is good. Thinking back to that, going back to the former days is good and helpful. But then consider your salvation. Some of you remember the moment or the season or maybe the hour. I talked with a guy this week who, who, who could go back to about a 12-hour period. He said, within this 12-hour span, I, I was wrestling, 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 wrestling. Boom, it was done. Some of you, can, you have those, that experience. And some of you don't have that experience. If you belong to Christ now, here's the point. If you belong to Christ now, there was a moment when God saved you. Whether you felt it or not, knew what was going on or not, in that instant of regeneration, the, the blowing of the Spirit, however you, you might have perceived that in, in your soul, if you're a Christian, there was a moment when God came to you and saved you as, as Paul described it to Titus. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Maybe you can go back to the time, the hour, the day, the season, the year, the six-month period, the year, whatever. Or maybe you can't, but you can say there had to be a time when the goodness and loving kindness of God my Savior appeared and He saved me. God, in that instant, 
imperceptible to us, extended an eternity's worth of saving grace to you. Marvelous grace in a moment. Right there it was. And think about it. Again, in your blindness, in your arrogance, in your foolishness, in your rebellion, all of that, this is where you're going. Blind, arrogant, foolish, rebellious. You're running one way. What comes in to meet you there? The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior. He meets you and stops you and saves you. When you were, according to Scripture, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, you passed your days in malice and envy, get this, hated by others. You didn't know it. People hated you. They hated you. Hated by others and hating one another. They didn't know it, but you hated them. And as you lay smoldering like a brand that we would just flick back into the fire, ready to be flicked into hell, God snatched you from the burning. The prophet says, you, you laid wallowing in your blood like a child, a newborn infant, thrown out into a field, wallowing in your blood, and God came near and He said, live. In an instant. Now be honest. In that day of His power, what did your former ways of of gloating and exalting yourself, what did they do for you in that instant? What did they mean to you in that moment? How did they help you in that instant? What what did your attainments do for you? What did your genealogy do for you? Did God come close and say, who are your parents? Nothing. What did your job or your money or your house or your toys, what did any of that profit you in that moment? The answer is nothing. The wind of the Spirit blew and you were changed. And again, I'm not sure which stories are actually more amazing. The ones where people, can, they were cognizant and aware, they're in their later years, God's dealing with me and He's dealing with my open rebellion and we're wrestling contrary to all my natural desires and then He saved me, or the ones who say, I don't even know when it was. All I know is in 2011 I was not a Christian and 2013 I am a Christian. I don't know. Which is more amazing? I don't know. It's all a a supernatural work of God that happened. If you're a Christian, that happened. Think about it. Consider your salvation. And then maybe go on after that. Go back to the early days of your faith. Was there not probably among some of us a little zeal without a whole lot of knowledge? Would it be possible if that were... The case for some of us. Was there not probably in those early days a very quick willingness to conform to, to some teachings and, and practices that now you look back and you say, well, it wasn't really biblical, you know, but that's all I had. I, I just, I, I was, Providence had put me amongst this group of people and I, that was Christianity and so I, I just began to conform. And now I look back and I say that might have been a little too far, but I didn't know. Were there not for many of you days and months and years of searching and studying and growth, searching, studying, growth over a period of time? Maybe sometimes it's very, very intense and maybe other times it's not not very intense at all. Or maybe you look back and you think, man, it's a wonder I knew anything. Maybe it's all just sort of a blur in those early days of your faith. But think about it. Where has God brought you now? What has He taught you? Think about the things that He's brought to light. Or maybe, maybe He's made known some, some sins to you. You know, in those early days, usually it's very quick to get rid of these, these open sins. And great changes might happen. But then as you progress, you find out, well, I've been, I've been harboring a, a particular sin for years. I didn't even know it was a sin. Uh, it, it was it maybe, maybe some um, underlying flaw in my character or my, my whatever. I just never considered it until God brought a person to me that addressed it, and all of a sudden I knew, oh, I've, I've got to deal with that. But he, he does that, has, has he not? 
Are there not areas of your life that you would have never brought into conformity to the Scriptures on your own except that God providentially led you there? You, you, were, you were not in circles where it was maybe uh, a priority to ask or, or, or popular to ask, what does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about the roles of a man and a woman in a family? What does the Bible actually say about child raising and those types of things? And I've heard these stories from some of us. You, you never heard it until somebody comes along and they tell you something you've never heard. And you would not have sought it. You were not thinking in those terms. But God brought someone along. And are there not blessings upon blessings that have come to you because God took you by the hand and led you providentially in those ways to teach you things? Some of them we we hear and, and see and talk to and change their diapers on a daily basis. That apart from God providentially teaching us and showing us what His Word says, we would have never sought out that pathway on our own. We would have never done that. So then, how could you... That, that's happened in the past. God saved you. And then He's been working with you since that point. So then how could you now at this present time, which is just chronologically later in the same process of salvation. You know, God, God is still working with us. How could you now take anything that you have and then boast in it over others? That, that's foolish. That wouldn't make any sense. You say, well, looking back, all these things that I had, well, they meant nothing to me and my salvation. And then as, as a young Christian, I mean, I was, I was converted, but I mean, I, was, I needed a cage. I, I should have been trapped. I should have been locked up. I was, I, there were still many things I did not understand. And yet God has taught me. He's brought me a certain distance this far. Now, are you going to look back at those things and then begin to boast in them over other people? Again, that doesn't make any sense. That's what He's trying to get them to see. And will there not, if the Lord tarries, will there not probably come another day in the years to come when you will look back at this very time and probably say some of the same things? Or have we arrived? We've not arrived. So more than likely, if if the Lord tarries, we might look back and say, you know what, man, April 2023. Boy, I, I thought I had it figured out. Somebody should have put me in a cage then. Oftentimes we just look back and say, no, back then I should, you know, obviously I didn't learn, but I've been a Christian for five years now. I've got this thing figured out. I'm not going to advance anywhere from here on out. I've got it. No, it's, that's not so. There, we're still going to look back. We're still going to see how much we didn't know and how far God has brought us. Can you not say, if the Lord continues to do with me what He has already done this far, then someday I will look back on some of the things that I said and did and believed even in 2023, and I will shake my head in shame at how immature I still was, and I thought myself great. See, this is a good and useful work to remember the former days. To think back on what God has done, where you've been, it's good to consider Number two, this work helps to increase our gratitude. This work helps to increase our gratitude. Considering your own calling increases your gratitude for what God has done because we are so quick to forget. We are like the Corinthians. We are very quick to slip right back into give me something to boast in. We forget. God is... So faithful, or His faithfulness is so faithful, He's so steady in His faithfulness that we often begin to take granted, to take it for granted that He would continue to do or, or that He has done what He's done. Looking back at the years of God's faithfulness to us when we had done nothing of our own or we had nothing of our own to bring and realizing that we're still in the same helpless condition before Him, apart from Him, that stirs up that felt sense of indebtedness that we often lose over time. You're you're not any more independent now in your Christian walk than you were at the beginning. If anything, you've only learned to hold His hand even tighter. But you, you should grow in gratefulness. God has done this. 
If we were all more thankful, there would be more gratitude. If, if, if there was more thankfulness, more gratitude, there would be less of a tendency to glory in ourselves, to divide into factions, to see everything as a point of contention and debate and strife. You just say, I'm just thankful. It would help us. It helps increase our gratitude. Number three, this work does away with belittling the work of grace. This work, considering the former days, does away with what is often our tendency, and that is to belittle the work of grace. The opposite extreme to glorying in what we've received is to overlook or deny or belittle the great work of God's grace in us. Pretend that He hasn't done anything. Just constantly mope as if we haven't gone anywhere. So consider your calling. Thinking back to where you were when God saved you and where He's brought you since that time and where you are now, does that not help you to see, you know, God has actually carried me. He's done things. He's taught me. He's helped me. He's fed my soul. He's nourished me. We can get a close look at all that He's, he's done in us and all that He's taught us. And we can see that He's truly been good all this time. He will say, yeah, looking back, He has rebuked. He's reproved me. He's exhorted. He's corrected me. He's trained me to walk in His pathways. And then He's poured out His blessings on me as I have walked in the pathways that He actually <laughs> trained me to walk in. And you'll be able to see that it's, it's, not, it's not helpful to constantly belittle the work of grace. I don't know anything. I haven't learned anything. I'm just ignorant. I don't know. Perhaps the only thing worse than taking the work of God for granted and using it to glory over others is to live your life in constant doubt and denial that He actually has done such a work. This is where the, the, those who struggle with an assurance of salvation actually begin to drift in sinning against God. If God has worked, don't doubt that work. It might not be what you want it to be. None of us have that. It's probably not going to be something that anybody's making a documentary about anytime soon. But that don't belittle that work. Don't. So how can you? How can you? Uh, how can you grow to see the work? Think back to where you were. Look back. Consider the former days. Consider your calling. I'm not where I want to be, but I'm not where I was. Who done that? That was God. He done that. So it, it helps us to, or keeps us from belittling that work of grace. Number four, this work increases our hope for continued grace. Our hope for continued grace. Not only does this confirm and remind us of the past grace of God, but it gives us hope that there will be more grace to come. We, we say when we do this, well, if God has worked like this up until now... Will He not continue to work? I have great hope. Even if it feels like a small work. You see, God, you might, might feel like it's small. It's not. You might feel like it's small, but think about it in the grand scheme of sin and death and the grace that was obtained by the bloodshedding and the resurrection of the Son of God applied to your life so that you who were once dead in trespasses and sins have been made alive with Him. That's not a small thing. Like five minutes after the new birth, nobody can, there's no work that can be compared to it. Even there, no work to be compared. The creation of the universe is a type of the fullness of God's work in our souls. The new creation, you see. Even there, it's a great work. What does the Bible say? The angels of heaven rejoice over one sinner that repents and comes to Christ. Not, not one sinner that finally makes their way through their Bible reading plan in the, in the allotted time period. That's great. But man, just think about the fact that you're a believer. The angels rejoice over that. They watch this work of redemption and it seems to imply with amazement and astonishment. One of those, he's now saved. And if he's done these mighty things, will he not 
continue? Will he not do even greater things? Has he brought you this far to say, and I'm done. Now you're on your own. No, of course not. We know that's not true. So this increases our hope and it motivates us to continue running with endurance the race that's set before us when we consider our calling. We go back to where we were. Number five, this work increases your confidence for others. When we take time regularly to look back on where, God, uh, where we were when God saved us, it helps us look with greater confidence on those who are not yet saved. Paul said this in 1 Timothy 1.16. He says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost or the chief of the sinners, the, the, the greatest of sinners, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. In other words, Paul says, Christ's perfect patience with me, with one sinner, is to be an example to hold out hope that He can extend the same patience to other sinners. Oftentimes we look at unbelievers, we, we watch unbelievers, and this is the lens. We put on this lens where we forget that I was once a child of wrath. Oh, look at them. Oh, they're just children of wrath. Paul would say, just like you were. We think of them and their situation having forgotten that we too once followed the prince of the power of the air. We look at them as a hopeless case because we don't really see that we were worse off than them. Or maybe you've not forgotten that. Maybe you've not forgotten because you, you never actually believed it to begin with. You really don't believe that you were all that bad off before God's grace came to you. You need to consider your calling. You need to go back and see what the Bible says about your condition. But when we look back with honesty, we have to admit that we too were at one time separated from Christ, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's where we were. It's often the case that those who have received the most patience and grace forget that they required the most patience and grace. And we forget that, but if we would look back, if we would consider our own calling, consider what the Bible says about who we were, if I can, if I can look back and honestly say, you know what, I was foolish. My foolish heart was darkened. I was powerless. I was led astray by my own passions and lusts. I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. If I can say that, then I can look at somebody else and I can say, you're not beyond God's mercy. He did it to me. I can hold out hope. If God would save me, then nobody is beyond His mercy. If God would hold me, now I'm, I'm, I'm being personal, if God would hold me, if He would keep me to this hour, y'all, He's not going to let go of you. I can assure you of that. He will not. You see, it causes us to hold out hope for others. Number six, in all in all, this work serves to humble us because that's what it was meant to do to those in Corinth, to humble them. It's meant to remind them of the way and the power of the cross. This would force the Corinthians to reckon with their own history and their own experience would then prove that God's intention was not to save in a way that conformed to the standards of the world. God literally said from the beginning, I'm not going to do that. Whatever I do, I'm not doing that. And they would have to say, you're right, that's exactly what has happened. Rather, God thwarts human wisdom. He saves the foolish and the weak, literally the nobodies, the nothings of the world. And coming to terms with that fact humbles a person. You're nothing. You're a nobody. The, the world does not account us or reckon us as anything. But God does. God saves His people. That's who God chose. And it causes us to realize, I've got nothing to boast in in myself. Not a thing at all. As He's going to say later on when He, when he begins to bring this argument to a close, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Why would you brag because somebody put a gift in your hand? You received it. Maybe God saved you when you were consciously 
running from Him. Maybe God saved you when you thought you were walking right beside Him. Maybe God saved you when you were giving Him no thought at all. But in any case, considering your calling, considering where you were and what your condition was when God came to you and said, Come forth! That humbles us. And it reminds us, I've got nothing to boast in. Not a thing. As it is written, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. That's what Paul said. In order to display the perfect patience, almighty power, and grace, and love of God in Christ, if you're going to boast, boast in your weaknesses. Don't don't glory in a rebel and, and belittle God's grace. Boast in the Lord. Now for some of you, to consider your calling, to think back to where you were when God saved you and made you a new creature, that's an impossible task. Because you go back, 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 and you say, that's never happened. It's not true of me. I'm still living in open rebellion against God. Now, I can cloak my present condition with a false profession of faith or, or upstanding morality, but again, ask some people in here. We've all been there. We've all been able to do it. Maybe you say, I've never really thought of myself as a sinner in need of mercy. Well, listen, if that's you. The Word of God never tells anyone in in the matter of salvation, the Word of God never tells anyone, well, you just sit right there and wait for, for God to do something. The Word of God never even tells us to pray and ask for regeneration for ourselves. We can pray that for others. But we're never taught to do that. The Word of God now commands all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. That's the command. Repent and believe. Because the fact of the matter is that you are a sinner. That's the truth. As a matter of fact, you need to understand that you are the great sinner that the Bible talks about. You are that one that the Bible talks about being under condemnation even this very moment. And you know in your heart that it's true. You know that at best your life is spent in moral, upstanding self-worship. It's all about you. The very first commandment requires that we worship God and Him alone, that that we love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you could say, well, I don't do that. You can't do it because you won't do it. You are an old, you're still the old creature. You're still dead. And you've taken all of the praise that belongs to God and you pour it on yourself. And maybe you're thinking, well, in, in the end of, in, end of the matter, in the judgment, well, surely something I've done will be sufficient. Surely God would not send an, an upstanding person like me to hell. I've been good. Listen, God says that won't work. That will not work. By works of the law, will no man be justified in His sight. You're not good enough. You're not okay. You're not safe. Your condition is desperate. You are like a firebrand tottering at the edge of hell that if we walked by that fireplace, we would swipe it right back in. Just that simple. That's your condition. And you have to understand that. But listen. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through Him might be saved. God sent His Son into the world incarnate or enfleshed in in the nature of a man. We, We call Him the man Christ Jesus. And that man, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life of obedience as a substitute or a a stand-in almost, like like a proxy for sinners because we can't do it. So Christ comes and does it. It's almost like He nudges us out of the way. He says, just stand over there. I'll do this. And He lives a life of perfect obedience. And then the iniquity... For all of our sins is charged to Him and He suffers and dies for them on the cross. He was punished 
for our sins as if He had done the sinning. When, when He didn't do the sinning, we did. But He was punished. And then three days later, He was raised from the dead by the power of God. Well, what does that tell us? So that tells us that what He did in His life as our substitute and His death, paying for sins, was received by the Father. It was, it was satisfying to God. It pleased God's justice. And God is pleased with what Christ has done. And therefore, that's why He can say, everybody who comes to me through Him, if you'll believe in Him and come through this work, you'll be saved. And that's why Paul can say, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's already taken the condemnation. So there's none for them. In Christ Jesus, that's joined to Him by faith. You, with the inner man, the soul, you, you sort of reach out and just take hold of Him and you say, I'll, I'll, I'll take that for me. That, that's what I'm going to hold on to now and, and even into eternity. I'm just going to cling to what He has done. And you're united to Him by believing and trusting in His work. See, this is why God commands all people everywhere. This is why God commands you to repent and believe. To turn away from your sin. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from your abilities. Turn away from your attainments. Turn away from your wisdom and your power. Just trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Let go of whatever you're holding on to you that you think is going to be good enough and just cling to Jesus Christ. And God says, if you'll do that, you'll be saved. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that that's true? Listen to this. Jesus Christ Himself said, For this is the will of my Father. In other words, Christ said, This is what my Father wants. This is what my, my Father desires to happen. Jesus could say it in His day, and it's still true today. He could say, Here's, here is the will of the Father. The will of the Father, the desire of God the Father, is that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And they shall never perish. And then shall snatch them out of my hand. And though they will go in the ground, I'll raise them up on the last day, and they'll be mine. They are mine forever. Jesus said that. So God the Son tells us, this is what the Father wants to happen. The Father wants you to come to Him through His Son, and has promised that if you'll do that, you'll be saved. So think about this. God has brought you here. He even arranged it so that a preacher would be here when you got here. How convenient. A preacher would be here to tell you what God has said, what God wants. God could have crushed you in your sleep last night. God could have killed you on the drive-in this morning. But He brought you here. And he arranged it so that a preacher could come and tell you what He said, which is, if you will look to Christ, if you will come to Him through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, you will be saved now and forevermore. God has done that. Now, you wouldn't ignore God, would you? If he done all of that, you wouldn't say, no, maybe, maybe later. I, I don't think that's for me. If God would do all of this, surely you wouldn't ignore. God, I pray that you wouldn't. Maybe for some of you, you'll be able to look back at some point and whenever you read the text that says, consider your calling, brothers, your mind will go back to April 30th, 2023. And you'll say, I heard and I believed. The, the scriptures say this, today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Just receive it with faith. Believe on the name of Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now, as I break the bread, and then this is the reason we do this, is because it allows everyone to see visibly, tangibly, a, a sermon, a, a proclamation of Christ being broken. So when you look at the bread, you see the bread. You think of Christ being broken for us. Christ.
broken for us. Now listen to what he says. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We see the bread. We look at the bread. We smell the bread. We taste the bread. In our souls, we look beyond the bread to the flesh of our Savior. We, we hear Him saying at the table, Take. Eat it. But that's what we see at the cross. On the cross, we should hear Christ saying, Take. Believe. Salvation is being put forward. So as the elements are passed, turn to Christ Thank Him. Praise Him for what He's done. Make a confession of sins that might be on your conscience even now. And then we'll come to the table together.